0: Hello and welcome to episode 62 of the Reenactor's Ramble, and it's a cold winter's evening here in the northeast as we sit on the eve of what is speculated to be the invasion of Ukraine
1: tomorrow by Russia.
0: Very worrying times indeed, Andy. Very
1: worrying times indeed. um, I went for a walk yesterday and my oldest, 11-year-old, asked me why. So I actually walked across this field, got my phone out and said, let's ask Siri, and we, we asked the question because I wanted to break it down. And I explained it. And I, I to be fair, I didn't fully understand why Putin's uh, doing what he's doing, his actions and what his motivation is. I don't think anyone no. still does. Nobody, nobody still does, and, right? Uh, ownership. And he's a bit of a, a nostalgic. Uh, rep- uh, he's nostalgic. He, he thinks uh, the, you know um, Russia has, has lost its identity and he wants to try and grab back a lot of these places that he's lost. I mean, he's, he's, he's basically
0: mirroring a, a, a sermon German gentleman in the uh, the mid to late 30s, uh, you know. So anyway, we won't go further into that. Let's just hope <coughs> that for Excuse our hours' yeah. sakes, uh, and I think for the memory of everybody that fought in those uh, areas so long ago, um, that it's avoided yeah. at all
1: costs. But anyway, how are you, Andy? What are you being <laughs> well, up to? being busy, boy. A uh, lot's happened in my life since we've been last on. Uh, again, it's been a good couple of weeks at least. Uh, been buying up some kit. I've bought myself uh, good, good, good. It is. On a good a, occasion here. This came in the post today. For those who are listening, it is a para, British para helmet mm, lovely job, by eh? the renowned Restorer. Is he a Restorer? What do we call him? Yeah, manufacturer? Yeah, Manufacturer Steve Kittle. Restorer. So thank Have you, Steve, you for us? that. Although I didn't get it from Steve, but from somebody else. Uh, so I'm chuffed with that, but I'm mm. waiting on a Steve Kittle jacket as soon as. How about you? What are you wearing tonight?
0: It's another one of Steve's masterpieces. This is my new reproduction smock, which everyone might have seen. Some yeah. The video that we posted online a couple of weeks ago, so very mm. happy with that. Um Certainly an upgrade on uh, some of the uh, other equivalents that we've had. But yeah, not been up to too much really. Just starting to plan the event season a little bit, waiting for the yeah. summer weather so that we can... Uh, Get out doing some bits and bobs, but just yeah, doing some some educational videos here or there, which you've been well, well, be, you yeah, doing your great, educational
1: really. videos. Somebody from that F, then in Portsmouth, passed me up a load of uh, documentation to do with the charitiers, the human torpedo men My sister, yeah, mm, my the sister lives next door to the the widow of one of those said gentlemen, and I've got his um, photo albums and all documentation relating to his exploits. Um, of which I'm currently archiving and researching. He even appears in the Eagle Annual 1973, um, which details his exploits in Palerno. So that's a nice little uh, read. Fantastic. So that's what I'm currently doing this week. I've taken a week off. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And
0: <clears throat> I said this I said this before, but buy the book, yeah. The Real X-Men, because it, yeah. it's a fascinating tale into uh, into those guys in the, the midget subs from Normandy to Norway to Palermo, as you mentioned, North Africa. Um, some absolutely incredible exploits. So that's one for you to get there, Andy, and uh, for all the listeners out there as well. The Real X-Men, it's called. It's a fantastic, fantastic book, breaks down the stories and the bravery of those men in those tiny little submarines. But alas, anyway, let's move on to the uh, the subject of today's episode. So, way, yeah. way, I can't even speak. I've half a beer. Right. So, we are joined by Matthew Noel, friend of the podcast, and we're going to discuss all things Canada and Canadian in the world of World War II reenacting. Um, so, Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us uh, You know, in the afternoon over there in, in Canada on a Tuesday. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well, guys. Thanks for having me here. It's certainly a pleasure to be here, joining with you, and talking about one of my favorite subjects. I am inside today. It's a balmy negative six degrees Celsius out today, two feet of snow on the ground, which is actually a lot better than the negative 20 it was yesterday. So all things being relative, today's a good day. And hopefully this is gone sooner rather than later and we can get back out in the field. Uh, Our group's trying to start the year off strong and is in a really good position to do so, depending on what happens with all the external forces we're dealing with these days.
0: So I mean, me and Andy have been looking for an episode over the last couple of weeks. We've scratching our heads a little bit because we have gone through so many topics and it sort of hit us you know we've been chatting to yourself about making a podcast episode or one of many uh podcast episodes about canadian reenacting and, and specifically canada in world war ii mm-hmm. and it got to it got me to thinking why why haven't we spoken about canada before um and it, it got me thinking about my own interpretations of canada in world war ii and, and, and canadian reenactment in particular and i always sort of I'm not afraid to say that personally. I sort of thought, oh, isn't it a little bit boring to a degree? And, and you know, before you jump in and and <laughs> rattle me for that, um, you know, Canada's always had, a, it has had an affinity to me due to spending many occasions in um, the D-Day Beach Centre in, in Juneau Beach, um, spending D-Day anniversaries there with a, with another um, British veteran who landed at Juneau Beach. So there, there has always been a, an affin- a sort of affiliation and an affinity to Canada for me, but it's never really gone too much further than that and i I can imagine that there's quite a few people who probably won't get as far as this sentence right now um, on this episode because they might see canada and think oh that's not that's not really up my street and i think for me that's precisely why we're here today and you know i thought to myself ahead of this episode let's let's have a little look about um and see what i know about canada in world war ii and you know, what we should be knowing. And it was, it was astounding really when I, you know, I, I looked at my findings. I mean, 1.1 million Canadians served in the Canadian Army, Navy and Air Force during World War II. By the end of the war, Canada had the fourth largest Air Force and the fifth largest Navy in the entire world. And I think a lot of people think that Canadian reenacting can be limited, but, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit. But again, just to start it off, there's over 60 different regiments you can portray Um you know, and let's, let's talk about timelines. You've got January, 1st Canadian Infantry Division landing in England. Um, the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment were deployed to the southern flank of the BEF in Belgium. Autumn 41, uh, there's two infantry battalions deployed to Hong Kong, Surrender on Christmas Day. We've got the Dieppe Raid. We've got the Royal Canadian Air Force. Um, 215,000 at their peak, uh, over 13,000 were killed. And that's you know, before we get to Operation Husky, D Day, Market Garden, the Battle of Atlantic. You know, so for me, just just very quickly, I've gone over all of that. But I am so disappointed that we haven't addressed this subject sooner. Um, for every, anybody who is from Canada, for anybody who has Canadian relatives who fought, for anybody who does Canadian reenacting, Andy, why haven't <laughs> I we? I think discussed it's been a lack before? of
1: knowledge. But you've just uh, done yourself proud, old boy. You've done a bit of research, and for me, when I was um, Discussing things with Noel over the past week, you know, it was going through my mind: what do I actually know? And I thought, well, okay. And some of the facts and figures you've just relayed were um, came up in my little bit of research, which I haven't done. But um, I think it's it is a, is it ignorance? Is it a case of because we don't portray that? We don't have we don't actually know anyone, unless now Matthew, who actually does this as an impression. I certainly don't know anybody personally. Um, it is it's, it's few and far between in
0: Britain, apart from Canadians yeah. that I've met in Britain. I want to know
1: a lot more about it, and I'm going to um, pick uh, Matthew's um, brains from uh, outside of this uh, podcast because I've got a relative um, who is in the Canadian, um, I think it's the RMC, um, who dated my auntie, who's still alive. And they had a, a child. And um it's a little bit uh interesting the family history here, but I've got his name in his papers and things, so I wouldn't mind uh, doing a bit of delving. And I say this secretly because not a lot of people know, but now they do. Uh, and I'm saying that yeah, but, but you know my time is <laughs> not this anyway. But...
0: no. Fingers fingers crossed. But but Matthew, so why why do you think, you know, from what me and Andy have just mentioned you know, it's, it's rich in Canadian history. Why do you think, especially over here in Britain, that it isn't as common as, say, you know, U.S. reenacting?
2: Well, you're correct. In the Canadian involvement in the Canadian effort, though monumental for what it was at the time, um, you mentioned some of those figures you mentioned, uh, Bill 1.1, men and women under arms. That's roughly 10% of the population a primarily mm. rural population at that time as well, and a very multinational population as well. Mm. You've got the English and French elements of Canada, but at that point you've also got huge influx of Germans, Poles, uh, Ukrainians, right across the country, and many different other European nationalities in that. So for all them to have mobilized, and the entire country who have gone from a non-war footing, and without much of a... Um, I, I, I don't want to say not much of military heritage because there certainly is in Canada, but without that Mm -hmm. um, maybe strong supportive background like you would see in the UK or in the US as well. Um, The beginning of the war in Canada is also one of the first times Canada takes its own steps towards being a more independent dominion within the Commonwealth than it had during the First World War. So when the war is declared in the First World War, it's automatically assumed that Canada is involved. In the Second World War, there was never any doubt that they would be involved as uh, one of the larger members of the Commonwealth at the time, but there was also a distinct time difference between when Britain declared war on the 3rd of September, we waited a full week till the 10th, till it could be put through a parliamentary vote, um, just to say that there was that little bit of independence there. So we certainly Mm -hmm. make that move to it. But generally speaking, you're right. The Canadian involvement gets rolled up um, entirely within the uh, British involvement in the war. We did field our own army at one time, uh, the 1st Canadian Army, composed of the 1st and 2nd Canadian Corps. But we also fought along with a number of the places that you mentioned, Uh, the British Garrison in Hong Kong. uh, Dieppe was sort of a multinational force. And we also had two infantry, well, one infantry and one armored division as part of the 8th Army in Italy and Sicily as well. So from mm. our perspective, Canadians, it's certainly a very uh, large, substantial involvement, but it is always tend to be part of someone, someone else's involvement as well, be that the British side or uh, at several points during the war, uh, the American side as well
0: seems like because there weren't too many i guess independent elements of of, i guess canadian action in comparison with the us and and the british that's maybe where it gets a little bit lost i guess um behind wrongly or rightly behind you know british or i guess american or other forces
2: Yes, absolutely there is. And generally to look at the Canadian soldier in terms of his kit, his organization and his equipment, it very much parallels the the British involvement, the British Army and the rest of the Commonwealth as well. So it is very easy to mistake one for the other or to include one within the other, I guess I should say. But there are some very, very distinct elements that really were experienced only by Canada at the time. One of Canada's major contributions to the war was actually worked out pre-war. And that was the British Commonwealth Air Training Programme. So for those of you guys who had relatives Mm -hmm. in the RAF uh, or in the RCF, because, of course, guys were cross-posted to both, um, up to about 130,000 aircrew were trained in Canada throughout the war. And that, along with involvement in the North Atlantic, uh, Northwest Europe, Italy, Sicily, and the Far East, and some other random spots, um, really do concentrate a, a massive effort on the part of the nation at that time.
0: Absolutely. And Matt, that was going to be one of my questions, really, about the, the Commonwealth air, air Training Plan, because, you know, at its peak, there was 94 schools over there, 231 sites across Canada, 11,000 aircraft, um, three trainee, 3,000 trainees per month graduated, you know, so it was a huge, huge part of of the war effort um, over Europe specifically. Um, you know, 45% of them were British and, and other Commonwealth as well. So I was going to ask just in Canada before we dive, you know, a little bit more into kit and some of the more specific regiments, um, from Canada fought in World War II. Is is there much left over there in Canada? Are you the remnants of these air training plans? Because in, in Britain, we've got, you know, slight mm. remnants of airfields. Some of them are just bits of concrete on, you know, grass fields. Some of them are actually sort of still right there in active use today. You know, what are those airfields like today? Those 231 sites I mentioned, are any of them sort of, you know, restored, kept as museums?
2: Absolutely. A lot of them are still around. Most of them are now local municipal airfields. They've been upgraded and modernized and such, but there is one roughly maybe a 10, 15 minute drive from me in Oshawa, Ontario, okay. that was a British Commonwealth Air Training Program base at the time. Um, it is now a modern airfield. And now the original base was at the south end of the field, the modern Aerodrome and everything is at the north end of the field, north control tower and whatnot. But at the southern end of the field, there is still a couple of buildings left. Now, I grew up in the area that I currently live, and growing up, I remember there still being both wartime hangars still on the property. Now, they got to such a condition that it was actually cheaper for the, to let the city let them fall down rather than actually demolish them themselves. So they've been gone a number of years, but there were those two hangars, um, a couple of Nissan huts, One of which was filled with a guy's collection. This guy started collecting May 30th, 1945, and didn't stop until he eventually passed away. So, the stuff in this museum, Rich Andy, incredible, incredible stuff. And he didn't have one, he had five of them, you know? Um, And there's still a couple other buildings there as well, one of which is just currently being renovated. Uh, But also at that, uh, the southern end of the airfield, is a museum that we work with very, very closely. So the local regiment is the Ontario Regiment, which was an armoured regiment fought all the way up through Italy uh, before finally transferring to northwest Europe during the Second World War. They have the largest operational military vehicle collection in Canada. And this stretches everywhere from Second World War all the way up to modern times. So they've actually made their home there. And one of the largest events we do with them every year is hosted right on that airfield exactly where our ancestors and predecessors and relatives were working and marching and training 80 years ago. And that's just one small local example. I can think of dozens of others, including one, a couple hour drive from here, which has virtually been untouched since 1945, to the point that a lot of the buildings are falling down but there are multiple H huts and hangars and gunnery sheds and dozens and dozens of buildings. It's incredible. I've never seen a place like it before, but yeah, the British come with their training program, very, very significant portion of it. Um, I had read something interesting recently, actually, that apparently the sort of stereotypical training program runway setup was three runways in sort of a, an A pattern or a crosshatch mm. pattern. Meaning there would never mm-hmm. be a time at which they could not take off into the wind because having no, mm-hmm. um, enemy threat here at any point, what a perfect place to be able to, to train. Right. Um, absolutely limitless. Um, so yeah, yeah, definitely one of Canada's most significant contributions to the war.
1: I think, um, about two or three years ago, I think I sent Richie, uh, a lot of postcards that I picked up somewhere and it was when you were getting into your, your RAF impressions. And they were all based around a, a Canadian service person um, of which when I did the research, it explains exactly what you're talking about. You know, these one of these multitude of bases, you know, and the way they migrated before they came to the UK. Um, fascinating information. For me, what's really interesting is if you get to know
0: mm. some of these actual pilots that um that went across on the air training plans, they spent. I think if I'm right in thinking, it was towards nine months of training uh in actual in Canada before they were eligible to come back. So a lot of these you know airmen that went across, they would be over there for nine yeah. months training, would come back and you know had a lifespan really of of six weeks. So you know to, to a lot of these people, Canada was was home. These young men, you know, they spent you know a large proportion of their actual adult life outside of their own home. In canada it became their life so you know it's a huge huge part of, of, of british history as well in, in world war ii and i think we, we shouldn't forget that contribution um at all you know not not to mention like we mentioned the actual amount of uh air hmm. crew that that took part and, and in canada as well matt is there is there much of a you know royal canadian air force reenacted presence um or is it largely favored towards infantry
2: definitely larger favoured towards infantry there are a number of individual impressions uh, of RCF of, and RAF of all types, be the pilot, bombardiers, navigators, all the way down to your IRCs, your LACs and whatnot. Um, I've got an LAC impression myself as well. It's been a while since I've worn it though, so maybe this will inspire me to put on the blue and get out there again. But primarily, uh, yes, it is infantry or service and core related reenacting for the most part. Now, where I am is um, I'm about 40, 45 minutes or so east of Toronto. So I'm landlocked. So there's really not much of a naval presence here either. But definitely Air Force, Army, 100%. Yes. As well as all the uh, women's services and corps and supporting home front elements and things too, which is something we're really trying to encourage here these days as well. Is it a big scene over there? Uh, Very small, for sure. For sure. Um, As a population, Canada is at about 30 million or so. So we're about 10% of what the United States is. So you can appreciate if there's a 1,000 reenactors in the United States, there's 100 here, right? And we can figure out similar ratios with the UK as well. So what we tend to see here are Mm -hmm. pockets of reenactors around some of the major cities. Um, Geographically, most Canadians live in the southern part of the uh, country. Within uh, 100, 200 kilometers or so of the U.S. border. So there's sort of a large band of people across the bottom of the country. Not a whole lot of people up top. You don't want to be there. Too, many, too much snow, too many trees, too cold. Um, not, not really suitable like it is in the south, right? So again, we tend to be in pockets in some of those major cities and not necessarily a whole lot in between. But we all work very, very well together, gel really well together, and act as uh, one group in a lot of cases, depending on the events in that we're attending. And we'll work very hard to support each other in the same way as well. And
0: Matthew, how does that affect, um, you know, equipment availability, uh, reproduction manufacturers over there and the price of equipment over there? Because, you know, we're seeing in the UK, the price mm. is just rapidly rising and rising and rising. The, the hobby, I th- think i would probably say is becoming bigger and bigger the the interest in nostalgia and vintage gears people and 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 sort of funnels them into the world of world war ii reenacting so what is that doing for for the price and availability of of equipment over there i guess because you know we just mentioned there the 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 training program over there for the air force um presumably there was similar elements for the infantry over there as well so in my from my perspective it it probably seems like there is quite an abundance of kit and the cost would therefore be quite low Would is that sort of how it comes across to you as well
2: I would say there's an abundance of kit anymore. Uh, when I started in this hobby, yes, you were still finding crates of battle dress and boxes of this and boxes of that, and that certainly changed over the years. Um, I kick myself for the things that I should have bought so many years ago, right? As I'm sure we all do. Um, we all sort of do. One of, yeah, and one of the internet's really been the best and the worst thing for that at the same time. It's made kit all around the world available to you. But I know in a yeah. lot of cases, we've lost a lot of that kit from Canada as well. Seen just on eBay, for example, or you know mm-hmm. the, the various Facebook uh, military groups and that. Groupings or, say, fully badged up uh, battle dress jackets that have been sold on eBay and have gone to Holland or France or Italy or somewhere else. We, we've lost a little bit of that. Uh, But we've gained access to all markets of other sort of things. And I've always said it's interesting, at least in my mind anyway, I find there's a difference between the Canadian kit you find in Europe versus the Canadian kit we find here. Because bear in mind, a lot of kit was disposed of or passed on to other nations, forces, uh, Belgium, mm-hmm. France, and that, for example. So the things that I think you guys find, and this is just my own thinking here, but what you guys are finding is a lot of the stuff that had been demilitarized and sold off as surplus in bigger lots, where a lot of things we find are things that maybe had not been issued or and are being let out a surplus after the war. And certainly there was... Just as much military surplus in use after the war here, um, including the, own, the property I'm on right now, um, as there was anywhere else as well. So there's certainly a lot of stuff out there. It's, but in terms of in terms of original stuff, uh, insignia, equipment, uniforms, but like everything else, becoming fewer and further between, and more expensive as well. Absolutely. Um, when I started in this, and let's say up to about the late '90s or so battle dress jackets were $50 a pop. So what, what would that be? Um, 30, 35 pounds, give yes. or take in that range.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now yep. they're easily many hundreds of dollars, depending on the unit, the rank, the condition, the year, and all that as well. So it's certainly not as easy to find things as it used there. it used to be, but you still get some pretty incredible finds from time to time
0: there are obviously some quite nuances and slight differences between british equipment and canadian equipment as well specifically in the infantry you know battle dresses for example um could you talk some of the listeners through some of those differences commonly found between you know uniforms webbing etc from british versus canadian because you know quite often um i'm a i say amateur maybe beginner um new reenactors the british scene can quite often find themselves purchasing canadian items rather than british so could you talk listeners through some of those slight nuances and differences between canadian <laughs> items and british and why that might be
2: certainly well um, I will say to start if you understand British kit you understand Canadian kit because there are a lot of subtle nuances in that but we're still wearing battle dress we're still wearing 37 pattern webbing and other items of equipment as well Um, so it's not a big step from one to the other and there was a lot of uh, we'll call it cross-pollination as well Canadians Mm. wearing British battle dress Brits wearing Canadian battle dress and equipment in that Obviously, we had the production capacity to be able to supply right around the world as well. So certainly a lot of that equipment, the arms, the vehicles. Canada produced, it was over 800,000 military vehicles. Um, A lot at General Motors, which uh, not too far away from here either. And a lot of that was made specifically for British forces um, and even Russians as well. We sent a lot of Jeeps and carriers and trucks and other things to aid Russia as well. Um, So again, if you do understand one, you understand the other. But again, there are those key differences of kit that would make you stand out as a Canadian versus a Brit. And from a Canadian perspective, um, there are several stories we could relate with where during the war, we're still regarded as colonials in a lot of senses, right? Cowboys to some extent as well, but certainly colonials. so the, you see Canadians taking a lot of those steps to promote their their own self-identity and the fact that we are not we are a we are not British and B we are not American either. We tend to straddle those those lines um, mm-hmm. f- fair- fairly easily in that. So uh, if we start kind of at the bottom and work our way up in terms of boots, we wore ammo boots. Same as Brits did, right across the world. That was the standard bit of footwear. The one key difference, though, is Canadian-made boots did not have toe caps on them. Oh. A really simple and easy way to look at somebody and under—are they portraying a Canadian or are they using British boots? And again, we would have used both at some point or other. Especially, think of a theater like Italy, where your supply lines are stretched so thin, and we are fighting as mm-hmm. in our own divisions, as our own corps, but as part of the Eighth Army we're really following the army supply route and the limitations thereof. So at some point, if you're getting a pair of boots, you're getting a pair of boots. And if they have a toe cap on them, they have a toe cap on them because there's a war on and there are a pair of boots and that's what you need. But the stereotypical Canadian boot would be identical to the British, um, you know, six or eight eyelets, pebble grain leather, hobnails, but no toe cap. So there's one thing. The Canadian okay. battle dress, of course, also follows the classic British example of the surge battle dress, just as the one example you see beside me here, Um, with one major difference Mm -hmm. though, in that we never had an economy pattern or an austerity pattern, whatever you want to call it. So we went through the entire war, just as you see here, Uh, this is an earlier 42-43 jacket if I remember correctly, but right up through 1945 until they changed to the 49 pattern with the open collar after the war, we had the single pattern of battle dress with the Uh, concealed buttons on the pockets the concealed fly on the front as well the only changes made to Canadian battle dress really were minor and never constituted a brand new model so example in 43 I believe it was we moved from a hook and eye closure on the collar to a tab that sort of folded over and then buttoned underneath the collar Oh, okay, but so a small change, but not significantly different uniform externally with the collar done up, you'd never be able to tell the difference. And we also go through a couple different, well, some changes in terms of the lining of the collar as well. So originally Canadian jackets were unlined around the collar, just raw wool, and eventually they start adding cotton to that, and then, like I say, later add the uh, the tab on the collar. But again, externally, we only ever had that one pattern of battle dress. So you can wear a Canadian battle dress in 1939 or 1945 and still be wearing the exact same pattern. Um, Unlike of course, British reenactors who if you're doing a 1939 or a BF impression, that is a distinctly different jacket from the economy or austerity pattern later in the war as well. But again, these uh, the Canadians were issued British stocks at some point. I had seen a picture in a local Legion hall just before Christmas, where the wearer was distinctly Canadian. Canadian cap badge, Canadian shoulder titles, I could spot it a mile off. And I sort of had to do a double take at it because sure enough, he was wearing an economy pattern British blouse because it did have the open uh, buttons on the uh, breast pockets and then the uh, button placket as well. And just recently I had seen in a set of orders from the third Canadian division, where uh, I believe it was September 43 or so, where they had distinctly ordered the removal of all British battle dress held in stores, with the notation that any British battle dress currently in use will be continued to be worn until it was worn out, at which point it would be distinctly replaced by Canadian battle dress. And the other really (laughs) distinguishing element of Canadian battle dress is that greener color. So it's much more of a khaki color versus what we would call a British brown color. Okay, Um, I do have a British jacket here. And this is obviously an economy pattern. And hopefully it shows well enough on camera here. But if I drape the two over the side, you should mm. be able to see there's a distinct difference here. olive tone to the uh, Canadian yeah. battle dress. Pardon me? Oh, mm. I missed you there. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, distinctly brown and Which a distinctly an olive tone, really to the uh... color. It really mm. is. It's hard to... It, and Canadian battle dress does vary widely as well, because there's a war on, and it's shades don't have to be 100%, close enough is close enough. So even within my own collection, I've got a half dozen different jackets that are all just slightly different from one another. But of course, it's not a solid color either. That khaki is made up of red and white and blue and green and brown strands and everything, because it's, um, it's not dyed, of course, it's milled to be that shade. So it's one of those things that really sets somebody apart from wearing a British uniform versus a Canadian style uniform. I guess one of the other major elements in terms of headwear that I'll point out is the beret. So Canada starts the war with the wedge cap or the field service cap, just as I'm wearing here now, Mm -hmm. uh, in a distinctly Canadian colour with distinctly Canadian buttons on the front as well. So we start off with that, and then when we finally adopt a beret in nineteen thirty, sorry, forty-three or so, it is a spun wool Basque style beret, similar to your commando, your armored, your airborne beret. Yeah, but distinctly different from the British general service cap, which, of course, is a multi-piece construction. Okay, Uh, Mm -hmm. not that Canadians didn't get issued those sometimes as well, but by and large, it was sort of a sort of national and unit pride to be wearing. Canadian Canadian made equipment, especially battle dress, which was generally regarded as being of a better quality and a better fit than British battle dress. Most Canadian battle dress was made by civilian contractors. Uh, companies like Timothy Eaton's and Tip Top Tailors that owned massive department stores and made suits off the rack by you know the thousands mm. and millions in that. They, now, there was a definitely a rough period of transition as they start to move towards production of Battle Dress. Uh, one source I had read recently said of the first lot produced by one of those companies, about 50% were rejects. So this is a major problem on with a limited supply of wool at the time and the need to outfit mm-hmm. these Canadian divisions in late December 39, early 40 that are trying to get overseas. So there were some initial startup issues, but once that was nailed out, generally because they had the experience of some finer tailing on civilian garments, the fit is just a little bit better. The cut is mm-hmm. just a little bit better. And there's generally a wider range of sizes versus Brit- British battle dress. Mostly being made by uh, military contract tailors, and um, of course, military contract tailors tend to uh, not necessarily put the most time and effort into that fit and finish. That tended to be one of the hallmarks of uh, Canadian battle dress, which is why you see it being sought after by uh, you know orderlies and hospitals and other light finger types who might be able to come into into a set of battle dress. So that's sort of the rough top to bottom things that kind of really stick Canadian out in terms of the most basic uniform without getting into insignia and further equipment from Mm -hmm. there.
0: Amazing! I think that'll be uh, really really helpful for the listeners out there and anybody looking to start a, a Canadian impression as well. And I think from a British perspective, I think a lot of the reasons that people don't necessarily go into Canadian reenacting is they maybe think it can be quite limiting. I think from um, you know, Andy's, we had a quick chat uh, off air before the episode started, and. You know, Andy's immediate um, mention, which is what mine would have been probably a few years ago, was to mention Juno Beach. And I think for many uh, British people, mm. essentially Americans as well, the first thing we think of when we think about um, Canadian military action in World War II is, is Juno Beach. And that's pretty much it. And I think a lot of people would naturally gear themselves towards thinking, I can only do a, a, a Juno Beach D Day impression. But we've mentioned Dieppe. We've mentioned, um, I know we, we mentioned Ard, We haven't talked about the Canadian Parachute Battalion. There's the 48th Islanders, there's this over yeah. 60 regiments that I mentioned there. So do you want to give, I guess, some a, a bit of a breakdown of, um, you know, a number of, of regiments and impressions that people are maybe not aware of that they could potentially look to do within the world of Canadian reenacting?
2: Well, certainly. Um, the Canadian army at the time was just as, I'll use the word tribal, as the British army was. Okay, You've got your highland regiments, you've got your local raised militia and territorial regiments and your permanent force and whatnot as well. So there's certainly as much color in terms of the variety of regiments and the different uniforms, equipment and insignia, and kind of attitudes that they all project to. And of course, a lot of these Canadian regiments are allied with British and imperial regiments of the time as well. One of the units I portray is the Toronto Scottish Regiment, who of course is allied with the London Scottish. Hmm. okay? They both wear hot and gray tartan, hot and gray kilt. Um so and there was always that Imperial and Commonwealth linkage there as well. So the organization of the Army is very much similar as well. A lot of changes to Canadian um, equipment and organization come into play actually in the UK to be able to conform with whatever particular organizational structure they happen mm-hmm. to be going with at that time. So whether that's changing the number of men in a section or a platoon, <clears throat> or, um, for example, adding the Royal Canadian Electrical and Mechanical Engineers just prior to D-Day so that that divisional organization matched what the British divisions were organized on as well, them having just formed uh, the REMI at that point as well. So the color is there, whether you want to portray a small county local regiment like the Hastings Prince Edward Regiment that you mentioned, which is another one of the primary units mm-hmm. that we represent. Or you want an a glamorous urban regiment like the 48th Highlanders, whose nickname was the Glamour Boys, because they were always the ones spit and polished walking around downtown. The, or a Highland regiment. There's always that same sort of color and that there. And you're correct in that the Canadian involvement was spread throughout the world from the start of the war in 1939, right up through to the end. So in December 39, you see the first Canadian infantry division being dispatched Mm -hmm. to the UK. And as you said, arriving in January of that year, some great footage of them disembarking and marching uh, right past Big Ben and Westminster and that. Most of those guys, given the shortages and the upstart in increase in production of battle dress, most of them went over with one suit of battle dress Wearing 1908 pattern webbing with no anklets because they just hadn't been produced at that point, wearing 1902 pattern gray coats and carrying SMLEs. So they start very much under the gun and a lot of cases under equipped. And if I'm not mistaken, it was about a year or so before the first division actually got their second set of battle Mm -hmm. dress. So you can imagine wearing that and training that and fighting in it and still having to go to town on Saturday night in that same uh, suit of battle dress. Which actually becomes a really point a big point of contention with a couple of units specifically. <clears throat> I'm thinking the Hastings Prince Edward Regiment, where some of them actually mutiny because they didn't have the time in that sort of stereotypical cold English winter to be able to dry their uniforms out. So they were always constantly wearing wet equipment. And that finally drove Gosh. them in that case to, uh, to a minor mutiny, nothing too major. But from there, you see the Canadian involvement and Richie, I got to hand it to you. I got to give you some props for your introduction there. Originally, you mentioned the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment, along with others, making that journey in through Brest after the fall of Dunkirk. Mm -hmm. They got, they landed in Brest, so south of Dunkirk, got on a train, drove about 200 kilometers or miles. I forget which, but further enough distance, whichever measurement you're using, they, got, they realized, well, we're about to be encircled, we're about to be overrun, so they, they switched the locomotive around, put that at the front of the train, and beeline it right back to the coast, right back onto ships, and back to the UK. But they were there, uh, and they were the only Canadian division at that point um, had, who had served in France prior to D-Day in 1944. You also see two Canadian battalions being sent to Hong Kong. And that's as much a political move as anything else. Without getting mm-hmm. into the entire history, uh, those two units, the Winnipeg Grenadiers mm. and the Royal Rifles of Canada, were really undertrained by later standards but had been fairly well trained by the standards of the time. And interestingly enough, had done garrison duty, which was more or less what was expected in Hong Kong. Okay. More or less, because there's more to that story, of course, Mm -hmm. but they had seen done garrison duty in the Caribbean, in Jamaica, in the Bahamas and Barbados. So they were experienced with that, even if they weren't the most highly trained at that point. Mm -hmm. Now, when they went to Hong Kong, they were wearing Canadian battle dress, but they also brought along with them Canadian khaki drill uniforms, which I won't delve too much into it, but are different than British khaki drill uniforms, both the patterns in some cases, but also the color. For whatever reason, it seems to be a Canadian thing that we need to be just a little bit of a greener shade than anybody else. (laughs) So to look at it, uh, I got some examples. Here. I won't pull them out just a moment. But uh, mm. it, to hold a khaki drill, British versus a Canadian jacket together, Canadian will appear a distinctly more greenish color. But that khaki drill, with the exception of Hong Kong and the Caribbean, was never taken out of Canada and never used overseas either. So Canadians of the 1st and 5th Division that are fighting in Italy mm. are actually wearing British supplied and manufactured battle, uh, sorry, khaki drill Dress at that time. So we've been in the Caribbean, we've been to Hong Kong, many Canadian units actually did tours of garrison duty in Newfoundland, which wasn't a Canadian province until 1949,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which actually at, con- at that point constituted overseas military service. Mm. So you see a lot of Canadians being moved around to a lot of these, some of the more exotic locations outside the theater of war, just to get experience and to free up more Imperial units to be able to return to the UK and bulk up those forces as well. So we've got Hong Kong, we've got the Caribbean, we've got Newfoundland, we've got Dieppe in 1942, as you mentioned, same uniform as the one beside me here, but a different, different insignia, different equipment. You've got the invasion of Sicily in July of 43 the invasion of Italy, just after that, of course, um, and the involvement of the 3rd Canadian Division in Normandy. You have the uh, sorry, 4th Canadian Armored Division and the 2nd Canadian Infantry Division joining them shortly thereafter in mid-July '44 or so. You also have the 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion parachuting into Normandy on June 6th as part of the 3rd Brigade 6th Airborne Division. And they, of course, work with them in terms of the uh, jump over the Rhine in March of 45, by which point in early 45, all those Canadian divisions that had been fighting in Italy are transferred to Northwest Europe and make up the remainder of the First Canadian Army. First Canadian Army at that time, and at various points throughout the war, had other nationalities and units attached to it as well. So, I know for Operation, I believe it was Operation Veritable, you have 30 Corps attached to the 1st Canadian Army. You have the 15th Scottish Division, the 15th Highland or 51st Highland Division. You have the Belgian and Polish Armored Brigades attached to them as well. So, the Canadian Army really did get around. We served in all different theaters of war, all different services, and alongside a whole host of nations as well. There is actually one interesting story, uh, I won't get into the whole thing, of one particular Canadian naval ship, I think it was the HMCS Uganda, actually voting themselves out of service in the Pacific and returning to the Atlantic to fight, where they had preferred to fight at that time. But of course, Canada has coasts and fronts on both the Atlantic and the Pacific. So for a Mm -hmm. lot of that war too, we're responsible for defense on both flanks plus providing troops for overseas service and all the other service and logistical support that that entails as well. So it really was a worldwide monumental effort. There's even some small elements it was. of, I think it was a Canadian radar group that was stationed in Australia as well. Mm. But other than that, that's about the limit that Canada played in the in the Pacific at that point.
0: Just so stick that in your Juno beach pipe and smoke it. Everybody out there that thinks it was just Juno beach. Yeah. But there's, there's loads, isn't it? I mean, and the more I looked into it, the more I was just like, there's so many little elements. There's the Aleutian Islands campaign in 42 onwards. You know, there's there's all these little tiny things that kind of took part in that you just have absolutely no idea about. Um it's, It is it is yeah. incredible, I think, when you, when you look at that and you just, when you think of it that way. But um is there, I, I've got a question as well, Matt. Is there something in... In one of these Canadian regiments, um, you know, in the various elements of service and and timelines during World War Two that you've mentioned, that is probably the most common or go-to reenactment impression for Canadian reenactors. Because I guess you know, in in the US, we've obviously got the 101st Airborne. We've probably got the Second Rangers. In Britain, we've we've generally got the uh, the parachute regiment. Um, Everybody wants to do the First Airborne Division. So, is there something? You know, in, in Canadian reenactment, which is sort of, I guess, the Band of Brothers, the 100% of, of Canadian reenacting.
2: that And that would probably be D-Day, Normandy, June 6th, 1944. Yeah. It's one of the most right. recognizable efforts, of course, as well. And it really is the one with kind of the most cliche, right? You're hitting back, you're attacking that <laughs> Atlantic wall. And I will point out as a source of pride here that Canadians actually achieved the furthest penetration on D-Day. Uh, roughly about 12, 13 kilometers mm-hmm. inland. So out of all allied units assaulting that day, it was the Canadians that made it the furthest at that point. So that's a point of pride. And, and and that's one of the primary campaigns that our group represents as well. We have two primary impressions, one of which is the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada, which did land on Normandy, June 6, 1944. And the other would be the, and this is why I'm so happy that you mentioned them earlier, the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment, which had a number of notable personalities in it, but really does have an incredible war record through, throughout the Sicilian and Italian campaigns as well. But definitely in locally in terms of reenactment groups... Uh, Queen's Own Rifles are one of the primary impressions here. And the second one, Mm -hmm. and again, this goes back to the pockets that I was talking about earlier. One of those other pockets up around Ottawa, Ontario, would be the 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion. Uh, They were, and a lot of that interest actually sort of stemmed from Band of Brothers when it was first released. It's sort of a Canadian thing to see something that somebody else is doing and go, oh, we've got that too. So the commercials on uh, TV on History Channel at that, around that time of Band of Brothers, were the Canadian Band of Brothers, which well, happened to be hmm. the first Canadian parachute battalion, uh, which I was per- trained at that time as well. And, yeah. was, and still am very pleased to have known many of those guys, cool. including their uh, last wartime. He was the last wartime commanding officer in uh, Canada by the time he passed away, Colonel Frazier Edie so those are two of the primary ones. Yeah. Queen's Own Rifles for D-Day and then the One uh-huh. Camp for Normandy. I yeah. really thought that the, uh, the Devils Brigade, the
1: first special service, might have been mentioned there. It seems to be uh, prominent when you type in Canadian
2: measurements. Well, d- don't let me undersell them either. One of the other main groups I should point out, in all fairness, is the first special yeah. service force. There's a good group of them just in the local area, and they do a great job as well. For any of the listeners who don't know, the first special service force was, if I get my ratios correct, about 60% American and roughly about 40% Canadian. Now, those 40% of Canadians had actually been recruited as the second Canadian parachute battalion, but ended up getting transferred to the first special service force. Mm -hmm. They were all trained for what had intended to be the invasion of Norway. Which never really happened, but they use that same mountain training and equipment and everything to um, work themselves up through Italy and uh, a number of their famous Mm. battles. But that's an interesting element for Canadians who want to portray a Canadian impression, but like the look cool factor of some of the American kit, because that's a completely different world. So they can be Canadians, Mm -hmm. but... Wear the M1 helmets, have the comfy M43s instead of wool battle dress, mm-hmm. and other things carry Garands instead mm-hmm. of bolt action rifles and that sort of thing. So, those would definitely yeah. be the three, yeah. but yeah,
0: yeah. Amazing, amazing, and um, and, and in Canada as well. Because I mean, in in Britain, I would probably say you know if you go back, maybe six or seven years, maybe eight years, I, w- I would probably say that seventy to eighty percent of all reenactors in Britain were were probably reenacting US or German. I think the minority was actually British. I think it's probably a little bit more even, um, in the last couple of years. But you know, how is that? How is that overseas representation in Canada? Is it is it primarily Canadian reenactment, or is there you know is there Um, other impressions of British, American, German. Is there any German presence at all over there?
2: Yep, there certainly is a German presence here. Uh, That group actually started with the sort of support and guidance of a local German veteran who had moved here after the war. He has an incredible story in his own right, right, which I won't get into. Um, But he provided a lot of good guidance for them, and they portray a, they're a bit of a hodgepodge. They've got a Wehrmacht element. There's a Luftwaffe element, Fallschirmjagers, that sort of thing. In um, addition to SS as well. Of course, these days, some of that's better kept under wraps than <laughs> than anything else. But <laughs> yes, a very strong German group that we work very, very, very well with. Uh, but interestingly, the one group that really isn't represented are the British forces. With the exception of a gentleman wow. in our group who represents British home guard. He is British born in his own right in that. So I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that other than him. I can't think of any local British reenactors to be honest with you. Wow. No, but again, the the equipment and the kit and the history really is so close and so intertwined Mm -hmm. that you could get your, you could do Canadian and probably still get your British fix. If, if that's what your, Mm -hmm. what your poison was. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. And maybe that is, you know, going back to the, the start of the episode, maybe that is, you know, one of those reasons why there, there is there isn't much of an overlap really, I guess, in, in either nation, really, just because the the kit is is so remarkably similar. And even even the names of the regiments, you know, the traditional Scottish affiliation with, with many of the regiments over there in Canada, um, yeah. if you're not educated, you could be fooled into thinking that, you know, some of the Canadian regiments are just British regiments. Um and I think a lot of people probably just aren't aware of that.
2: Well, there are a lot of Canadian regiments, especially things like Highland regiments that originated from British military veterans Mm -hmm. who had emigrated, say, before or after the South African War and whatnot. So you see a a cadre of guys who had served in, say, the Argyles, Mm -hmm. uh, the Imperial Argyles, now serving in the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders of Canada. So there's always a bit of that connection and a bit of that mix there. It was actually sort of a, it, it was a thing. Early, for, early war Canadian officers serving in the UK to adopt a bit of a, 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 bit of that stiff upper lip and a bit of that sort of put on British accent. And I know of one particular memoir where he makes very clear, uh, this is one of the private soldiers writing about this, his officer, it always seemed a bit of a stuck up, had a bit of that sort of clipped tone to him, which everybody <laughs> knew was absolutely affected. How quickly that dropped as soon as they entered combat and it was just not important mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah, But there's always been oh. that, obviously, a very strong Anglophile connection with Canada and Canada and the UK mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And, and Matt, just going back to,
0: to you on a more personal level, and level, so how did you find the world of reenacting? We always uh, speak to our guests about that, and I think it's always one of the most interesting parts of any guest episode. So how did you find this crazy old world that we uh, were all so in love with?
2: <laughs> oh, That's a story in itself, yeah. Um, at this point in my life, I've known very little different. Um, I actually got into reenacting when I was about ten years old. There was a right. local historical village that was doing, believe it or not, an American Civil War reenactment because there was a huge American Civil War reenactment group up here. You wouldn't you wouldn't think it, why? Okay, but there were roughly fifty thousand Canadians that served on both sides of the American Civil War then for a whole variety of reasons and that. And this group had become very well established up here. Well, again, I was about ten years old or so, and we were always visiting museums and historical sites with the family and that. So we went out one day, went to this reenactment, and it was incredible. Um, it was always something I was interested in, and it, but I never really thought much more about it after that. Didn't realize this was something somebody could do, or this was a hobby. I, I'm mm-hmm. ten years old. What do I know? Well, I got to hand uh, it to my parents, who actually got me involved. And for a number of years, it was both uh, my my father and myself as a little 10-year-old drummer boy going into events. And did that for probably three or four years until I started talking to a number of the other guys in the unit. Now, I don't know if this happens in the UK or not, but it's definitely a Canadian thing to reenact several different time periods as well. So a lot of the guys in our group have done 1812, have done the American Revolution, have Mm. done First and Second World War as well. And at that point, there was a number of guys in the American Civil War group I was with who were doing World War Mm. II Canadian. Now, this was also at the time where we tended to operate under umbrella organizations. And that has since changed a little bit as well. But it tended to be the same 10 or 20 guys at every single reenactment just in different uniforms as to the time period they were portraying at the time. So these were some of these guys, right? They did, Yes, they did Civil War with us, but they also did World War II and World War I and things. And at the point where I was about 16, 17, got into World War II and really haven't looked back at this point. There's a lot that I haven't done in this time period, but I made the decision long ago to really focus on Canadian impressions and the Canadian history. And until I'm done with that or find a reason to go somewhere else, um, that's that's what I'm sticking with. And at this point, mm-hmm. I'd like to say I fought the war five or six times over, but I'm still yeah. learning all the time, <laughs> finding new things all the time and finding new outlets to enjoy it with as well. But yeah, it's, it's been a long road. And that's why I say at this point, um, I, don't, I don't know any different in my life. And to that mm-hmm. point too, I kind of have a difficult time, I guess, appreciating what people who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, whatever it is, and are, but are just entering the hobby, what do they know and what don't they know and what don't they maybe understand? Just because I've always understood mm-hmm. things to be a certain way or things to happen a certain way. And that's something that I, I need to improve on and understand better. What do those people who have no idea need to know and where can we we best support them at that point? But, oh, for different decisions yeah, in my think- life, who knows where we would be right now, right?
0: indeed and I often uh, contemplate that myself and just mirroring your own feelings there um I, I can't remember a life uh, or what life was like without yeah. this hobby and I, I don't wish to uh to to, to feel that uh, anytime soon. Either, Um, and it's it's amazing to uh, to see the journey that you've been on. And a rest, sorry, a change is as good as a rest sometimes. I think, and uh, you know, as you mentioned, just exploring new areas of of your own uh, nation. There's 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 unlimited potential, I think, and you know, there's there's always something new, I think, to keep you enthused. And just just related to your to your last point there again, just on. I guess beginners, new people entering the hobby. I think it's important to note that people in this hobby can be beginners, whether they are 14 years old or 41 years old, um, and that doesn't make any of those people any, you know, less of a person for those things there. And I think you're right. We, you know, how us more experienced, we that, because do always need to be a little bit more open. I again will hope I hand up, uh, even though on many occasions Andy and I have talked about being more like Bill <laughs> yeah, Randleman like <laughs> and being more beginner friendly. But but we still don't though, do we, Andy, all the time. And I think we do as a collective need to sometimes sit down together and actually have these calls that we're having now, uh, Matt, because you know, the, the the level of education you've provided over the last fifty or so minutes. Has yeah. been outstanding, and I've learned a lot, and Andy's learned a lot, and the listeners will learn a lot. And I think we've got to do more of that on this podcast, Andy. We've got to do more education, more learner-friendly, you know, and, and not even just to beginners. You know, let's help people learn that are, have been in the hobby for ten years and haven't maybe expanded on their own things. Let's go into some of the details and the risk that comes.
1: It does. With I that think well. um for me, having my notes and having an extra screen up in front of me, everything that Matthew is discussing, I was thinking that's what I was just going to ask. That's what I was just going to say. So it was just a it was a perfect um, lecture. I'll, I'll put it down as a lecture because you've just taught us everything that I, we we all wanted to know. So that was just it's been a fantastic experience actually. It
0: isn't. Do you know what I'm mm. really really enjoying still is is just that. All over the world. Obviously, we've got Matt over there, five hours behind in in Canada. We spoke to US reenactors. We spoke to reenactors in the Czech Republic and all over the place. And I'm absolutely loving the fact that this worldwide community that does something very, very niche. You know, it's amazing that all over the world we're enjoying this very small hobby, and we can get together on these calls, and then and people all over the world can can listen to it as well and we can all get involved in this community i just wish that we could all get together in some sort of huge worldwide song, reenactors meeting somehow no, jamboree that sounds good yeah maybe we should just get every well, well, in the states and everywhere together
2: what you guys are doing here with the reenactors ramble is incredible um i've it was probably uh You guys were about a year in, I think it was when I first started listening to you and that, but Mm -hmm. it was, it was something different, even if it wasn't a Canadian topic, you know, I guarantee you it wasn't at that point, but still interesting to listen to and to be able to connect with everybody right across the world. I've always said uh, reenacting living history is really an incredible social experiment in a lot of ways. I've run a number of training events over the years. And on Friday afternoon, we bring in people from across the region who for one reason or another would have never have met each other, would never have known each other. Richie, you and I would never be talking otherwise, except for mm-hmm. this particular podcast. We could be standing shoulder, shoulder in Duxford, looking at an exhibit and never think twice about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But to bring people together yes, from exactly, different yeah. backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, situations, mm-hmm. families, experiences, all sorts of things and be able to put them together and train them and have them drill together and all work together as a team is really, really amazing in my mind. And I'm sure you guys will echo this as well. It's certainly the the people rather than what we're doing that keeps me around for this because I have been very fortunate to meet a lot of fascinating people in this hobby. And I I wouldn't trade (laughs) it for anything. That's for sure.
0: No, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's, it's months like this, you mm. know, We I, I've struggled, I think personally over the last sort of six weeks really where it's been quite challenging, I think, where you aren't around those people. And I've, I've sat in this, this lovely room that I have, um, you know, for years and years and years of my life living in a small flat in London, um, would dream about having a Jeep in the garage and would dream about having my equipment on display around me and all the uniforms and equipment that I've now got in my life and it's funny that when you get to the end of a season and you have nobody to share these things with how these things very quickly become meaningless and and valueless to a certain degree and I think you're right until you've got somebody to share it with like yourself or like my friends in the hobby around me it's it's meaningless and it's all just it might be worth money it might be an interesting piece of history but unless you've got those passionate people around you to engage with it's it's almost pointless
1: it's true though.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah, there was there was one point last year where I kind of looked around and said, What the hell am I doing? It's at that point, mm-hmm. you're right, it was just it's just stuff. It's it's old old people's stuff, right? Old people's junk. But without that, it was that knowing that I'd be getting to talk to you guys, that I'd be getting to see the rest of my group, getting mm-hmm. to see my friends and get out there again. That certainly it, it holds it, it holds the value for me because of that.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly does. And I think that that's mm. a nice way to see out the episode for anybody who's maybe struggling at the moment with uh, with the, with the, the uh, post-season blues, I think. You know, when it's winter, uh, we're still a few months away from the first events, um, you know, of the year coming in there. So for, for those people, you know, reach out to your community digitally. Go and see your friends. I mean, I've been up to Edinburgh a couple of times. Um, hopefully get yeah. to see Andy before the event season starts. Maybe go over to Liverpool as mm. well. So connect with your community um, and don't just let your items in your collection become stuff for a few months. Get out out there and uh and live the hobby but Matthew thank you thank you so much for the last hour or so it's it's been fascinating and I feel like uh, we're, we're just sort of well, really getting started I think and we're just peeling back the surface of uh Canadian reenactment and I would love to dive into it a little bit more with you soon
2: well thank you guys very much for having me it's been a pleasure yeah. like I said you guys are doing amazing work keep up the good work and uh yeah keep uh, bringing that community together you certainly got my support and everybody else's as well so good job guys thank you very much for your time appreciate it thank you
1: Matthew
0: no worries thanks very much Matt and, uh, and a big well done as well because Matthew actually won the the uh, prize on the Ray Ramble Zoom quiz a couple of weeks ago as well with all time design so congratulations on winning that prize and uh, hopefully you've spent it wisely
2: oh I've, I'm waiting for my airborne beret as soon as they hit the stores <laughs> and it uh, gets in the package and gets over here I'll be wearing it so yep it was definitely uh, very, w- very well spent Fantastic.
0: great man Brilliant. well it was lovely speaking to you guys and uh, take care again everyone we'll see you all again soon